Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, February the 25th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the national elections in the Federal Republic of Nigeria, Africa's most populous state. Also, there has been an explosion at a sports stadium in the West African state of Cameroon, where 19 people were reportedly injured. Burkina Faso is hosting the Pan-African Film Festival, Fespaco amid heightening insecurity inside the country. And the United States government is drastically cutting food supplemental benefits while inflation is taking its toll among millions of working and impoverished people. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on African-American History Month. We will look back on the 50th anniversary of a lecture delivered by Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, at the University of California at Los Angeles in 1973. Finally, we hear a lecture by scholar Michelle Alexander on the continued enslavement of African-Americans utilizing the prison system inside the United States. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. We'll listen to the music of Fela Analapo Kuti uh, from the 1975 album entitled He Miss Road. Thank you. 
carry and go for shoemaker. He me his road. Oh yes. He me his road. Oh yes. He me his road. Oh yes. I say 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 he me his road. Oh yes. The lawyer, he giving case to prosecutor. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. He go go for prison, oh yeah. He go go for jail, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. Driver, where enter one way, he go jam magistrate for road. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. He could pay his fine, oh yeah. He go go for jail, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. Musician, where carrying band, he play for union of deaf and dumb. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. He go play for nothing, oh yeah. He go play for nothing, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. Gorilla, where run from bush, enter Lagos, he enter bus. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. He me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. He go cause confusion, oh yeah. Driver go stop, oh yeah. Bus go break, oh yeah. Passenger go scatter, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. I say he me his road, oh yeah. If you miss your road, not come my way, I beg you. Don't 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 come my way, I beg you. I don't want your trouble. Don't find my trouble. If you miss your road, not come my way, I beg you. I don't want your trouble. My trouble, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you.
Take four. One, two, three.
Baleko, Oja Sunday, Laughing Motia.
Welcome back to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, February the 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. That was the music of uh, Fela Analapo Kuti. Uh, from the West African state of the Federal Republic of Nigeria from a 1975 album entitled He Road. Right now, I want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Some frustrated Nigerians have cast their ballots uh, with flashlights, while others stood watch at their polling stations as counting got underway uh, late uh, today amid fears of vote tampering after a day of delays in Africa's most populous nation. Election officials blame the delay on logistical issues, uh, though other observers pointed to the upheaval created by a redesigned currency that has left many unable to obtain uh, banknotes. The cash shortage affected transport not only for voters, but also election workers and police officers providing security. Voting ended well beyond schedule and many places after delays but some were still voting in a few areas uh, where the exercise stretched into the night. In the northwest Bauchi state, uh, Lagos-based Channels TV reported that voters were still voting using their torchlights at around 9 p.m. <clears throat> and you can read uh, more about uh, the situation in the Federal Republic of Nigeria, the elections that are taking place this weekend, and their implications over the Pan-African Newswire website. In other news, at least 19 people were injured in an explosion earlier today at a sporting event uh, in southwest Cameroon. That's according to authorities. Nine athletes competing in the Mount Cameroon Race of Hope in Buea Town uh, were injured, as well as 10 civilians, including a baby, said Bernard Okali Bikay, uh, governor of the southwest region. The injured have been taken to Buea Regional Hospital and are receiving treatment. The Central African and West African nation has been plagued by fighting since the English-speaking separatists launched a rebellion uh, some six years ago uh, with the stated goal of breaking away from the area dominated by the French-speaking majority in the country and setting up an independent English-speaking state. The government has accused the separatists of committing atrocities against English-speaking civilians. Uh, The conflict has killed more than 3,300 people and displaced more than 750,000 others, according to uh, the United Nations. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Burkina Faso, most film festivals can be counted on to provide entertainment laced with some introspection. The week-long FESPACO, the Pan-African Film Festival, that opened uh, Saturday in the violence-torn Burkina Faso capital goes beyond that to also offer hope and a symbol of endurance in years of political strife and Islamic extremist attacks, which have killed thousands and displaced nearly 2 million in the West African country. It has never been canceled. We only have the Spaco left to prevent us from thinking about what's going on. That's according to Imuna Indai, a Burkina Nabi actress uh, who has for submissions in this year's competition. This is the event that must not be canceled, no matter 
the situation. Uh, since the last edition of the biennial festival in Ouagadougou, the capital, the country's troubles have increased. Successive government failures to stop the extremist violence triggered two military coups uh, during 2021, with each during 2022, with each junta promising uh, security, uh, but delivering few results. At least 70 soldiers were killed in two attacks earlier this month in Burkina Faso's Sahel region. The fighting also has sowed discord among the once peaceful population, pitting communities and ethnicities against each other. Nevertheless, more than 15,000 people, including cinema celebrities from Nigeria, Senegal, and Cote d'Ivoire, are expected in Ouagadougou for Festpaco. Africa's biggest film festival uh, that was launched uh, some 54 years ago in 1969. And uh, finally, inside the United States, uh, nearly 30 million people uh, who were eligible for extra government help uh, with grocery bills during the pandemic will soon see that aid shrink, and there's a big push to make sure they're not surprised. Officials in 32 states and other jurisdictions have been using text, voicemails, snail mail, flyers, and social media posts, all in multiple languages, to let recipients know that there are extra food stamps in after February's payments. One of the scenarios you don't want to see is the first time they are aware of it is in the checkout line at the grocery store. That's according to Ellen Volinger, an official within the Food Research and Action Center. For the average recipient, the change will mean about $90 less per month, though for many, it could be as much, it could be much more, an analysis shows. Benefits will return to what was considered the usual levels, which are based largely on household income, size, and certain expenses, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which oversees the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP. A public notice in Michigan urged the 1.3 million recipients in that state that, quote, seek needed resources, unquote, to make up for the cuts. And with that, that we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's Pan-African Journal or worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, February 25th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take another break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week. Live. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, from the first album by Earth, Wind, and Fire in uh, 1971. And uh, Love is Life. Uh, Of course, uh, the album produced by the legendary Charles Stepney. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, February in the United States is uh, African American History Month. Uh, Started as Negro History Week uh, by Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1926. And, of course, expanded uh, a half century later in 1976 to African American History Month. And uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, every year, and in fact, every week and every month, uh, we commemorate the lifetimes and contributions uh, of African people uh, to world civilization. Tonight, uh, we're going to listen to his historic speech uh, delivered by Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, at the University of California in Los Angeles uh, some five decades ago on January 31st of 1973, where he discusses Pan-Africanism and Krumism. Let's listen to uh, Stokely Carmichael in this 1973 address at the University of California in Los Angeles. Good afternoon. My name is Jeff Grunfeld, Chairman of the Speakers Program. The topic for today's lecture will be Nkrumahism, the correct ideology. Mr. Carmichael has worked with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee from 1960 and was SNCC chairman in 1966. In 1967, he traveled extensively throughout Africa and third world countries. He returned to the United States to organize the first United Black Front in Washington, D.C. In 1968 until 1969, when he resigned for ideological reasons, Mr. Carmichael served as Prime Minister of the Black Panther Party. Since 1970, he has lived with his wife, the African singer Miriam Makiba, in Conakry, Guinea. I might add that working there for four years, he has been awarded citizenship of Guinea and is traveling under a junior diplomatic passport. This, this citizenship granted is a symbol of unity between Africans and motherland and Africans abroad. Following the the customary question and answer period, there will be an informal reception with Mr. Carmichael in the men's lounge. All interested students are invited to participate. And now, Mr. Stokely Carmichael. Good afternoon. The lights are very bright. It is a pleasure and an honor to be back at UCLA. I think the first time I was here was in 1965. I returned, I think, in 1971. This is 1973. Each struggle evolves, and as it evolves, it reaches and moves up on new levels. This is true of all struggles, all people's struggle. Thus, it is also true of the African struggle. The African struggle in particular has reached a new level, as has the worldwide struggle in general. 
That new struggle must be represented also in its form, whereas, for example, in 1968 or 1965, we would be yelling and screaming and appear to be emotionally upset about injustices. In 1973, so our struggle must advance. We cannot be still yelling and screaming about things. We have to proceed in a logical and scientific manner to outline our problems, provide their solutions, and carry out the work. Thus, the level our struggle has reached today is a level where while we are emotionally involved, and certainly we must be emotionally involved, it's our struggle, it's our very life, our struggle must be guided by clear rational thought, clear rational thought, following clear principles of scientific reasoning. Scientific reasoning is necessary. When I use the word science, I merely mean science, all knowledge, fact, that which can be held up to light and seen. Science, one and one plus two. Everybody can see it. I say this because struggles must be guided by clear ideology. Struggles must be guided by clear ideology. And the ideology, if it is to be successful, one of its criterion is that it must be scientific. You can't say to someone, I believe this, thus so and so or someone told me this and I'm telling you this. No, you must be able to see each person struggling and show them why this is so. And not only why this is so, but why it is logical and why it is inevitable, therefore it is successful. That must be done. Thus today, we intend to do some of that, talk very slowly, very carefully, about rational guidelines for revolutionary struggles. Now, as I said earlier, the African struggle, of course, follows general principles, what all struggles do, but the African struggle itself is a particular struggle and thus has its own particular principles. Today we speak before an audience that is composed of Europeans and Africans. Rather than just speak about the specific aspect of the African Revolution, I think it would be more better or more fitting if we spoke about general principles of revolution, general principles about revolution. Now, I've been mentioning the word revolution quite a bit, and maybe we ought to talk about it. When I use the word revolution, I mean a complete, a complete and thorough and dialectical changing of one system to the next. A complete and thorough dialectical changing of one system to another. Thus, for me, there is no chance for revolution to come about without armed struggle. There is no possibility for it. There must be armed struggle involved in it. I noticed, I think it was yesterday, I believe it was the LA Times, they had a little article in there about Stokely Carmichael, and they said in the article that Carmichael has stopped preaching violence, so said that violence is past and it's time to construct. Of course, I looked at the article and said it's only wishful thinking. It's only wishful thinking. Carmichael is, not Carmichael is not calling for bloodshed. Carmichael is a political activist who has credentials, outstanding credentials, if I must add. And Carmichael happens to perceive certain things. Carmichael happened to perceive certain things. And Carmichael perceives that revolution is going to take the world by storm. And that revolution is not going to be outside, and it part will be all over. Thus, there will be and must be revolution in America. Understand, Carmichael is not calling for revolution. Carmichael is not saying, let's have revolution. Carmichael is saying, based on his study and based on his activity, Carmichael knows revolution is coming. Carmichael knows it's coming. Carmichael knows it's coming. 
And thus, since Carmichael knows it's coming, Carmichael is telling everybody, it behooves you to understand what's happening and be on the right side. Otherwise, you'll be like Elridge Cleaver used to say, part of the problem or part of the solution. You better be part of the solution because it will be solved. It will be solved. There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. 
Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. To really understand capitalism and socialism, we must have some discussion on these two systems, just some discussion. Now, it's impossible, it is totally impossible for me to explain to you capitalism and socialism in the little time that we have. It is not possible. I am not even attempting to do it. What I'm attempting to do is to give some definitions and some characteristics of this, of these systems. Now, I know as students in an American university, you understand nothing of capitalism and socialism. I know that because I'm a product. I'm a product of those schools. Yes, you get nothing about it. They don't even discuss it. How can they discuss it? It's not possible for them to discuss it. Not possible. I mean, they're fighting communism because capitalism is democracy and freedom and not, 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 et cetera, et cetera. It's impossible for them to tell the real truth about the system. It's also impossible for them to tell the truth about socialistic and communistic systems. But the truth will be told. The truth will be told, not in words, but in action, clearly demonstrated by the Vietnamese, for example. The truth will be told. The truth will be told. The truth will be told. Capitalism is a backward system. It's backward. It is degrading. It is dehumanizing. I, if one ever looks carefully at a capitalist system and a socialist system, you must want to know, why would anybody with any sense in the head pick capitalism? I mean, why? Only a greedy man, only a man not understanding society, mankind, humanity, civilization, only a man so encompassed by his own greed that would lead to his own destruction would choose capitalism. Under a capitalist system, the means of production, means of production. Now, your students, your students. So, like, I'm just going to give you a few teasers, if you will, on capitalism. But your job is to study them. Your job is to understand them. If you're students, I mean, if you didn't just come here for a piece of paper, you must understand politics, because politics dominates your very lives, all of you. They dominate your lives. And you must have some understanding of the systems which you support or which you try to tear down. You must understand them. The means of production is owned and controlled by a very few people. A very few, few people. Small number. Not a lot. Few. A few people own and control the means of production. By the means of production, I mean anything necessary, machinery notwithstanding, money and resources, to build, to produce things which can be sold on the market. To produce things which can be sold on the market. Only a few people own and control the means of production. Example, General Motors. General Motors has means of production, resources and machinery to build and produce cars. The owner, the owner, the owner of General Motors is a capitalist, the owner. Now under him there are many people, there are many people who have big jobs, make a lot of money, like perhaps the general director of General Motors. The general director of General Motors, he is not a capitalist. He's not a capitalist. He is a lackey of capitalism. He is a lackey of capitalism. There's no doubt about that. That he is. That he is. He is what uh, Chairman Mao Zedong would call a running dog lackey of capitalism. He's that. He serves the interest of capitalism. 
He derives a good living from serving the interests of capitalism. Thus, he will probably support capitalism. As a matter of fact, he will support it harder than the capitalist will. He will. But he's not a capitalist. He's not a capitalist. We must understand clearly when we talk about capitalism, who are the capitalists? As if we understand that there are only a few people who own and control the means of production in the society, then we begin to understand that there are a few capitalists. And these capitalists exploit everybody because everybody works for them. Everybody sells their labor to them. It is by selling your labor to a capitalist that he's really able to exploit you. Instead of going through theories, let me give some direct example. Let's say that I'm a capitalist. And let's say that I, I sell shirts. I sell shirts. I sell shirts. I have a shirt factory. Let's say this is my factory. I own it. The machinery. I have a place where I get cotton. Now, I own it. I'm the capitalist. And let's say you are my workers. You are my workers. You don't know me. You never see me. You see my lackeys, you know, maybe my foreman, but you never see me. Now, let's say it costs me 50 cents for cotton for every shirt I make. And let's say it costs me 50 cents for upkeep of my machinery. That's a dollar. And let's suppose I pay you a dollar for every shirt you make. That means it costs me $2 to get a shirt, labor included, your labor. I pay you for making the shirt. Now, when I sell the shirt, being a capitalist, and you must know something about capitalism, very important, the sole motivating force, the sole motivating force in a capitalist society is profit. Profit. That is the sole motivating force. Profit. Get money. Get it. Get it as fast as you can. Get it any way you can, but get it. Just get it. Just get it. And uh, even in, uh, you know, in the African community, this, it affects us here in this country because Africans, those of us living in America, those of us born in America, we are imbued with the philosophy of capitalism, and sometimes we don't even recognize it. Thus, you find brothers and sisters even selling dope to their brothers and sisters to make money. Again, because we're imbued with the philosophy of, get some money! Ain't nothing wrong to kill for money. Hell, your country is napalming for money. You can certainly kill for some money. All right, just get it. Just get it. It's the overall philosophy. When we talk about revolution, we must talk about changing values. We must talk about changing values, and we must understand these values. To the shirt factory. I've not forgotten. I'm just going to tie it in. I'll tie it in for you. I'll tie it in. You will see, you must look under the shirt factory, too. You must look for spiraling economy. That's very important, spiraling economy. I sell the shirt for $5. I sell the shirt for $5. I don't do anything. You're the one who makes the shirt. I'm exploiting your labor. You toil, you sweat, I get the fruit. That's right, I get it. But you grow it, you plant it by the sweat of your brow. I get it. I sell the shirt for $5. I am exploiting your labor. I really am exploiting your labor. I mean, even when you want a shirt, hey, you got to come to my store and buy the shirt for $5. Hey, I really am exploiting you. Now, you're workers, you're in a factory, so you begin to get social consciousness. Yes, you do. Marx talks about this. Because you're working together, you see the socialized process, the socialized process, the laboring process, and you're able to see clearly how you're being exploited. So you get together, and you start talking about, we want more money. You tell my foreman we want more money. So the foreman comes to see me. He says, the workers say they want more money. Later for them. Keep them working. Man. 
So he comes back, no raise. They all work, but you all get a little bit more agitated, you know, because it's scientific. The pressure rises, and as the pressure rises, the consciousness must rise. It's scientific. It can't be stopped. That's why revolution can't be stopped. Then you say, hey, look here, we're going to strike. So the foreman comes back and says, hey, they say they're going to strike. I say, oh, let them strike, man. And sure enough, y'all strike. Yeah, y'all strike on me. Now, when you strike, of course, my, my machinery stops. I ain't making no money. So after a while, I called my foreman and said, what do they want? He says, well, they said they want a dollar fifty more a shirt. They want 50 cents more a shirt. So I said, okay, let them have it. <clears throat> so I'll bring you back. You happy? I pay you a dollar fifty more. Right. So it now cost me two dollars and fifty cents to make a shirt. It cost me two dollars and fifty cents to make a shirt. Before, it cost me two dollars. I was selling it for five dollars. But hey, look here. I can't go out there and keep selling it for five dollars. Hey, how am I going to do that? I'm going to lose profit. And look here. Since the sole motivating force in a capitalist system is profit, <laughs> ain't no need for me to come and sell it for five fifty. Hey, no. Next time you see that shirt on the market, it's going to cost you $7.50. Right, right. And that's what's known as the spiraling economy. Because profit is what about wages go up at the demands of the workers and prices rocket. Wages go up, prices rocket. And it keeps going and going and going until it's got to blow the top. It's scientifically real. That's why Nixon is talking about freezing wages and freezing prices. He's stupid. You've got to freeze capitalism, Nixon. Freeze capitalism. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yes, that's the problem. You must understand these concepts, because once you begin to understand them and master them, you will see the inevitability of revolution. Not only the inevitability of revolution, but you will see the inevitability of victory for the struggling masses around the world once you understand the scientific principles of revolution. Once you understand it. And when you understand that, then you will understand what President Nkrumah says when he says, the secret of life is to have no fear. To have no fear. Because once you understand that yours is a course which cannot be defeated, you can scorn death. You can look it right in the face when it's coming. When he's about to pull the trigger, say, hurry up, pull the trigger. There are 50,000 brothers climbing over my back to get to you. Pull it. Pull it. Pull it. Right on. Say it. Us. It's especially necessary for Africans in this country to know that we have nothing to be afraid of. Our victory is assured. Is a short. It's written in history. It's already down there. Can't nobody mess with it. Scientifically, we'll prove it step by step. One of the cornerstones of capitalism is the concept of private property, a backward concept, an uncivilized concept, a dehumanizing concept. Private property. This is mine, says the capitalist. This land is mine. I own it. That's nonsense. Didn't nobody come here with no land. How are you going to own it? He came here the same way I came, and I didn't have no land with me when I came. And my father didn't have none, and my grandfather didn't have none, and my great-grandfather didn't have none. So can't nobody own none unless you usurp the land by unnatural and barbaric means, obviously. The land belongs to everybody. The land belongs to everybody. 
Under this concept of private property, it reaches its epitome in this nonsensical concept of individualism at the expense of the group. That's what they talk about in America, individual rights, individualism, and then nonsense. Can't be no individuals at the expense of the group. Again, a particular warning to Africans in America is this concept that comes down to us, comes into us, and we don't even recognize it. The other day I was talking to a brother on 14th Street in Washington, D.C. I said, brother, why don't you come out here and help your people? He said, I can't help my people unless I help myself. He said, I'm trying to help myself, and then I'll help my people. And he really felt he said something. You know, he started walking away. I said, hey, brother, can you rise above your people? Obviously not. No man can rise above his people. Thus, you have to help your people, and by helping your people, you will help yourself. Of course. Of course, it's on the way. It's on the way. Scientifically, it's impossible. If a man rises above his people, it's because he's stepping on his people. It's the only possible way. Only possible way. The man comes from the people. The people doesn't come from the man. Thus, hey, it's the people. You've got to serve the people first. You've got to work for the people. That's the only way you will advance your cause. Not by yourself. He can become a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. It's the people who make history. No man makes history. The people make history. So it's the people that we must work for. These values are important because in a capitalist system, individualism, individualism, I, me, this is mine. These are the values which we must now fight where we have power in our communities, African communities, to institute a new sense of values in our people, to give them new principles, uncompromising principles by which we can be bound in order to make our struggle more fruitful and more victorious. In the other sense, in the larger community, we must try to show them, we must try to explain to them the necessity of new values which are diametrically opposed to the values that are found in a capitalist system and hope that those people understand it and move to destroy capitalism move to destroy capitalism. Individualism, very bad, very backward. Totally backward concept, totally backward concept. But they hold it. Under a capitalist system, this is the funniest one, they have what is known as conflict of interest. Hey, and they, not only do they respect conflict of interest, hey, they hold it sacred. They hold conflict of interest sacred, you understand? They teach you, I know your American government teaches, they say, this is the gross national product of America. It's $300 billion trillion. Everybody says, wow, that's a lot. And it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Ain't no problem with it. It's a lot. Then he says, but in this country, we have farmers, we have workers, we have teachers, we have lawyers, we have employers, and everybody must fight to get a piece of the pie. Yeah, right on. And whoever gets the biggest piece, all praises, you know. And everybody accepts that, man. They tell you all the time, this is a society of conflict of interest. And everybody's fighting to get the biggest piece. Now, here's the funny part. The same people always get the big piece. <laughs> they always get the big piece, right? Hey, but listen to something funnier. You want to hear something funnier? The people who get the little piece, they keep believing someday they're going to get the big piece. <laughs> and that's why they believe in the system. Because <laughs> they believe, well, I didn't get it this time, but next time. <laughs> No, it can't be done, it can't be done, it can't be done. 
The people with the little piece always going to have the little piece. As a matter of fact, they keep getting smaller and smaller. Like, <laughs> keep getting bigger and bigger. And you see in our communities, too, brothers on the block, I'm going to get me a hog. And I'm going to have me a hog. Right on right. Right. <laughs> Only one way to get it, of course, in the capitalist system, exploit your people. He'll do that. He'll do that to get the hog. That's the system, you understand? And they say this is all right. They say conflict of interest is good. The farmers should fight and get as much as they can. The workers should. The teachers should. The employers should. Everybody should. Yes, and everybody believes that someday they are going to have the big piece of pie. This backward system. Totally backward system. Look at socialism, if you will. See the refreshing difference to a teacher in a government class in a socialist country. This is our national product. Three million dollars. It is not much. We have farmers. We have workers. We have teachers, we have students, we have this, we have that. It is far better if all of us get together and say we have one interest, building the nation and serving the people, and build our national products. And as they get bigger, we will divide the peace evenly among ourselves. It's refreshingly different. Refreshingly different. Not only is it refreshingly different, it makes a lot more sense. Because everybody's trying to build something rather than everybody trying to tear it apart. Because if you're fighting for the biggest piece, the thing can't grow. But if everybody's working together to make it bigger, it can grow. It can evolve, and thus civilization can really be appreciated by mankind. Let me give you an example why I say backwards and doesn't help you to grow. America, now this is a funny country. In this country, I can make two statements that are truisms. They're truisms. Now listen to them. First truism, America is the most powerful, technologically developed, scientific country in the world. Truism, absolutely correct. Second statement, America, based on first statement, America made better cars in 1945 than she does in 1973. Correct, absolutely correct, absolutely correct, <laughs> absolutely. It's a backward capitalist system. In 1973, you should be making better cars for the people, safer cars for the people, than you did in 1945. Yes, of course, it's backwards. It's a backward society. And if you understand how politically backward America is, you recognize why she got to fall. You ain't even got to worry about it. Big Brother, it's going to fall. It's going to fall. It's got to fall. It's politically backward. It creates contradictions. There are built-in contradictions inside the system because the system is based on greed, where people fight each other, kill each other for a piece of the pie. And any system like that must fail because everybody's trying to get money and not concerned with man. Got to fail. And look here, the contradictions rise so much that they put it on television. You can even dig it and smile and laugh. They have a commercial on TV. This one's real funny, man. I was checking it out the other day. They have a chick in the bathroom. Husband comes in, opens the door, he kisses her. Goodbye, honey. He closes the door. He gets out the door. She says, where are you going? She says, I'm going to the barber shop. She says, oh, you always leave me for the barber, don't you? He says, well, honey, you know, uh, the barber shop, I can get a warm shave. She opens the door. She says, not anymore. I have warm Gillette shave for you. You don't need the barbers. Says, right on. Barbers out the window. Boom. On television. <laughs> on television. If you understand the contradictions, if you understand the contradictions, then you'll understand the weak points. You'll understand where to put the pressure, how to help bring the system down, if you're really revolutionary. But you must be revolutionary because the system is going to fall down. The system is going to fall down. 
socialism. Under socialism, there is no conflict of interest, as we said before. There's only one interest. There's only one interest. The means of production is owned and controlled by the people, not by a few people, by all of the people. Thus, the workers in my factory own the factory. I, working with you, own the factory, and I don't, I'm not a capitalist. I'm in the factory with you. I'm working with you. So our sweat produce the toil, and we all share in the toil. As we get profits, and we get profits not by raising prices, but by increasing our work production force, we're able to help build the country. With the profits we get, we can have better schools, better hospitals, better roads, all of the things necessary for our life, rather than one person getting it all. It's a very important concept. It is diametrically opposed to capitalism. There's something you must know about revolution. Something you must know about revolutionaries. Now, we said that in revolution there must be some destruction because two things can't occupy the same space at the same time. Scientific fact. But now, a revolutionary has a responsibility. He has a responsibility. He can't just talk about destruction. He can't just talk about that. He must talk about creation. He must talk about creating because he wants to put another system where the old one is. And he must be preoccupied with creating the new system. He must be preoccupied with creating the new system. In order to create the new system, he must destroy the old. That's understood. That's understood. But his preoccupation is not with destruction. It is with creating the new system. It is with creating the new system. But he got to destroy. He got to destroy. Oh, he got to destroy. It's like the Vietnamese. They have their guns next to their hoes. It's like in Guinea-Bissau. You go there, the brothers have their guns next to their hoe. They're building, but they know they must destroy. So they're ready to destroy, but they are preoccupied with building, not with destroying. So when someone says they're revolutionary, and they come to you and they're preoccupied with destruction, understand they're not revolutionary. They're anarchist at best. At best, they're anarchist. They must have. Thus, the system that we outline today is one of scientific socialism, one that says this is a new system that we must fight for. This is a new system that we must understand, especially with the values. The values. Under a capitalist system, money, money is the center of the stage. It is money that becomes important. It is money, life. It is no longer important, just money, 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 money. It seems as if man begs to money. Yes, it does. Socialism in its value system stands refreshingly opposed to this backward concept. It is man who is at the center of the stage under socialism. It is man who is an end in himself and not a means as it is under capitalism. It is man who understands his ability to transform and carry out all of the functions of life. It is man that we serve, not money. Not money. President Sekou Toure says, It is man that creates money, not money which creates man. Thus we must understand man is the most important element. We must understand that. Particularly for Africans living in America, we must understand that man is what we want, not money. Don't run after money. Run after your people. Get the man, and I promise you we'll get the money. We'll get the money. We'll get the money. Thus, in organizing for revolution, we must understand that 
Political organization is a prerequisite to economic organization. Political organization is a prerequisite to economic organization. This must be clear because they're trying to confuse us in this country. They're trying to confuse us. They want us to believe that economic organization must precede our problem. It cannot. It cannot. Political organization must. There is no country in our generation that received economic independence. All of them first received political independence. You must have political organization. Especially for those of us living under capitalism movement imbued with the philosophy. We must have it simpler because we must come to understand. We must come to know that being imbued with capitalism, we see money always as the object which we must have to make life good. And so when we change over during our political organization, we will be indoctrinating ourselves with values found in our traditional African society under communalism, which will serve as a guideline to keep us under a new system. And under that system, man becomes more important than money. It must. My brother's on the street all the time saying, got to get some money. No, brother, if I have a million dollars in my pocket... If I have $2 in my pocket, I'm going to be the same old, same old. Money don't make me, and it sure can't break me. Man, that's what it's all about. People, that's what it's all about, not money. Thus, we must seek political organization first before we talk about economic problems. That is not to say that the major problem is not economic. The major problem is economic. The major problem is the question of exploitation. But the solution of how to get to the problem, we and Krumist in this country, we who organize for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we understand and know that political organization must precede the economic battle for true economic independence. It must do that. It must do that. For Africans in this country, we understand that Africa is our home. We understand Africa is our home. We're Africans. We're Africans. We're not black Americans, we're not Afro-Americans, we're Africans living in America. We happen to be in America because American imperialism needed cotton. I was born in Trinidad, I was born in the West Indies because British imperialism needed sugar. It's the only reason. Without that, I would not be born there. I would not be born there. <clears throat> Once we understand that Africa is our home, we understand that the building of Africa, the creating of strong revolutionary power bases in Africa will be that which will act as our sure protectors wherever we are scattered across this world. We must understand that. We must understand that the building of Africa must mean its total and complete liberation, its unification, and an all-African government which follows scientific socialism down the line. Down the line. We must understand that. Many of our brothers and sisters don't like to talk about Africa because Africa doesn't have big cars. Ain't no hogs in Africa. Uh -huh. ain't, ain't no Coca-Cola in some places in Africa. You can't even get Coca-Cola. Ain't no television in some places, you know. And uh, sure ain't no fine shirts, no. Africa doesn't have all that. And because they have been imbued with capitalist philosophy, equating always wealth with, with material goods, when they look at Africa, they think Africa is poor. They really do. Africa is the richest continent in the world.
But dig how rich Africa is. She is rich on two grounds. Her first and most important. Africa is the richest continent in the world in terms of a humanist ideals and traditions. No continent in the world can surpass Africa for that. None. None. Its organization of its civilization, its evolution to complete and total civilization, its man at the center of the state. No continent, no continent can superpass Africa for her richness in humanism. None. And that's the richest continent in the world. And some people don't want to identify with that. They'd rather have cars than have that. They'd rather have Coca-Cola than have that. They sell their culture for tinsel. They sell their culture for tinsel. Not only is Africa rich in terms of a humanistic ideal, she is, in fact, materially speaking, the richest continent in the world. Right on. Gold, diamonds, zinc, bauxite, iron, oil, copper, anything, even peanuts. That's how rich Africa is. Everything. Everything. Everything can be found on our continent. Everything, everything, everything. But it's a question for us particularly on how we understand and perceive Africa. How we understand and perceive Africa. I say we're not Afro-Americans. I say we're not black Americans. We're Africans. Sister Abby Lincoln said the other day, she said, I don't know why we won't do it. They're the only ones in the world who look like us, so we got to be us. <laughs> it's got to be us. I don't see why we keep running from it. I don't know why. I understand. It's the imbued philosophy of capitalism. I understand. If you say you're African rather than Afro-American or black American, you understand your history. And Afro-American's history begins in when the first slave ship came here, 1619. That's when the Afro-American history begins. The African, he understands that his history began millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years ago. And that the African in America just happens to be an African in contact with European culture in a different land. That is all, but he's still African. Still African. And understanding of this becomes important. Because once we understand that, the destruction of America will not be a problem for us. We'll work for it, as a matter of fact. We'll work for it. We'll work for it, once we understand it. If we are part African and part American, we might try to save both of them. And it's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible. If you are American, I can tell you scientific fact, you're part of the problem. If you're African, you're part of the solution, a big part of it, a great big part of it. We must understand that, because they try to trick you. Like I was listening to the radio the other day in D.C., and the cat was on the radio. He said, the Leaning Tower of Pisa is falling. I said, wow. He said, the Eiffel Tower is falling. I said, wow. He said, the capital is turning and is sinking. And he goes and explains all these problems these ancient buildings are having. And then he went off the radio. And I knocked on the radio. I said, hey, come back. You didn't tell me about the pyramids. Are they falling? Hey. Know yourself. You know your history. You know what you have done. You'll understand what you can and must do. That's why we must see ourselves as Africans. Can't break out. Can't cut your culture. You can't cut your roots. If you take a seed of corn and you plant it in Africa, you get corn. If you take a seed of corn, you plant it in Kansas, you get corn. Cuba, corn. Russia, corn. Hey, if you take an African seed and plant it in America, you got African. <laughs> African. You got African. So understand that. Now we want to go a little bit to specifics. 
I want to go a little bit to the specifics. We're organizing. We're on, there are many things. One of the things we should have covered was change. Let me say very quickly that change comes through dialectical processes. Change comes through dialectical processes, through conflict. All things have internal things that make them change. I change while I speak to you. Ten billions of my cells change. You change while you listen to me. This podium, it changes while, it's, while I'm speaking to you. If we leave it here, it would decompose. It would decompose because there's constant activity, contradiction and conflict within it that makes it decompose. Thus, if we can say anything about life, we can say that everything changes. Everything changes. Everything Thus, in understanding revolution, we must understand how things change so that we can understand how to work to help that change work for us. We must understand how things change. We say they change through dialectics, through internal conflict. There's always conflict. This conflict is scientific. If applied to social organizations, we should say that we can put, if you will, well, they have it even in science. I think they have negative and positive neutrons, do they not? Yes, they have them in science, negative and positive. So we can apply these negative and positive characteristics to social organization. In the black community, for example, there are many negative characteristics. There are many positive characteristics. Because we are a colony that's subjected to colonialism and neocolonialism in some places, some cases, it is clear that the negative characteristics are operating. They are the dominant factor. If one really seeks revolution, one must begin to collect the positive factors and bring a war against the negative. Now, you must understand something in positive and negative. You can never get rid of the negative, and you can never get rid of the positive. Each thing must have its internal conflict. It must have it. If it doesn't have it, it's dead. It's stagnant. It can't move. Thus, what we must seek to do is to bring the positives to bear so that we can control the negative. We can control the negative and keep it under control. We can never get rid of it. Thus, our organization must be so strong in its positive characteristics that we're always able to suppress the negative characteristics in us. And a society can be built on such. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, like, for example, human beings have lust. Yes, they have lust. Lust is a negative characteristic. But if the society is structured, it can structure so that it can pull lust out, the way this society is structured. I mean, on TV, they don't sell anything without sex. I mean, everything they sell, every advertisement, got to have some sex in it. Even if it's a razor blade, man, there's got to be a girl cocking up her legs or, you know, anything like that. But there always has to be sex. No matter what they're selling, there's some girl, and you're supposed to be eliciting eliciting sex. So the society is so structured that it elicits sex. That's why there's so much rape in the society. That's why there's so much rape in the society. In Africa, women walk around without any clothes covering their breasts, and there are no rapes. There are no cases of rapes. It's a question of how the society is structured. It's a question of whether or not man is seen as the central value, or money is seen and man is the object. If man is the object, obviously, he's an object of lust. He needs to be manipulated, interpreted, and manipulated for money. But if he's understood as man, the central being, Capitalism is backward because it seems to forget that the ultimate determining factor in life is not money, but rather procreation itself. That is the ultimate determining factor in life. It's procreation. If we didn't have children coming behind us, there would be no need for us to struggle. 
there would be no need for us to struggle. We just sit down. But it's because their children come in behind us that we must struggle. Thus, in fact, procreation is the ultimate determining factor of life. Engels said that. Even Engels said that. Leninist, Marxist, Leninist in America who neither understand Marx nor Lenin nor Engels understand me correctly. They neither do, but they must. They have to. Example I've just seen this paper from the Workers' Vanguard which says that the black power era has come to an end. They're wrong. It has not come to an end. It's evolved to a higher stage. It's evolved to its logical stage. Black power has evolved to Pan-Africanism, which is its logical extension. Black power means black people coming together and get power. Where are you going to get more power in the hands of black people than in Africa, our own homeland? It's logical extension. They don't understand Marx and Lenin. They try to distort our movement. They tried to deceive our movement. They would have you believe that anti-imperialist struggle can precede nationalist awakening. This is nonsense. Anytime you get ready to fight an anti-imperialist war, you must have nationalist awakening. You must have nationalist awakening. That's why you have so many national liberation fronts. The problem for the American Marxist Leninist is that he doesn't want the black man to find his true nationalism, which is African nationalism, which finds its aspiration in Pan-Africanism. That is the problem. Marxist Leninists would have us believe that we can fight an international war on all fronts without first having our national spirits awakening. Yet the contradictory stands before all of us. In Cuba, it was a national liberation front. In Vietnam, it was a national liberation front. In Algeria, it was a national liberation front. In Kenya, it was a national liberation front. In China, it was a national liberation front. Wherever revolution has spread its fires, it has been preceded by nationalist awakening in the form of national liberation front. Thus, black people in this country must have a nationalist awakening. We must have it. And that awakening must manifest itself in a black united front across the world. Across the world, not just America. We cannot be stingy about our fight. Let's spread it out. Let's spread it out. This deception of capitalism allows the white left movement in this country to be completely and thoroughly demobilized. One of the reasons the white left has been demobilized is because they have never understood clear objectives and clear ideology. And because of that confusion, they have been well sabotaged by forces inside this country. Their leadership has been sabotaged to take them down the streets of tripping off into yippieism and drug culture and running away from home rather than facing the real issues it had, which is capitalism and its barbaric condition in America. The white left has been distorted. The white left movement has been demobilized because it is a force to be dealt with. But like you can't stop it, it must pop up again. The white left will pop up again. It has to pop up again. Its contradictions are too much. Though they try now to deceive you, don't be deceived. When they talk about ecology, don't worry about ecology. Ecology is a symptom. The root cause is capitalism. Root cause is capitalism. Thus they pay money. Everybody talks about ecology to get you co-opted to understand it's a symptom. It's a symptom of an unplanned society, which is a basic characteristic of capitalism. It's a symptom of a system which just wants money, so it puts its factories where it can get its labor and gets rid of its waste the cheapest way it can. It's capitalism that the ecology movement must go against. The woman's lib. The woman's lib movement is an idiotic movement if it doesn't understand its root cause is capitalism. 
The cause is not man. You fight against a man for a job. It is the symptom, a system, a system known as capitalism, which pitches man against woman to exploit more profit. Thus, root cause of woman's lib is capitalism. And until they go to capitalism, they are deceiving the masses of American women. That's a fact. For us on the African All-African Revolutionary Party, we're slowly organizing and surfacing with our party. We've been clear, always, have been. We understand revolution. We understand that the black masses of this country are in fact the vanguard of any revolutionary struggle. That's a scientific fact. It's not because I'm black. We are at the bottom of the ladder, politically, economically, and socially. Thus it is we who must build the pressure forces up to create the movement that will shake this country. We are the vanguard of this movement. We are the vanguard. And we must understand our role as the vanguard of this movement. Check out our history and you will see it is the civil rights movement that put all white left groups into the spin. Check out your history and you will see that it was black people in this country under SNCC that first took a resistance stand against the war in Vietnam and the white left ran, only to come back five years later. We are the vanguard of this movement. And thus we must articulate our positions clear. We must articulate them loudly and with conviction. And we must have uncompromising principles, uncompromising principles, like the Vietnamese. They have uncompromising principles. You want my land, America? You may have my land, but not while I'm alive. Not while I'm alive. Uncompromising. We have supported the Vietnamese people down the line. The heroic struggle. Ours has never been a peace movement. We have always been for victory for the just forces of Vietnam against American imperialism. And the heroic children of Ho Chi Minh has just delivered a stunning defeat against American imperialism against American imperialism. The defeat, the heroic defeat of American imperialism at the hands of the Vietnamese must serve as an inspiration to us to understand class scientific fact. It is not technology that decides a war. It is the will of the people that decides a war. The will of the people that decides a war. Once we come to understand it is the will of the people who decides the war, once we shape and watch and project the stunning victory of our comrades in Vietnam, we will see that if little Vietnam, tiny Vietnam, small Vietnam, with its small population, can defeat American imperialism by all logic, by all scientific logic, Mother Africa and her mighty children will trample America into an oblivion of whiteness. The will of the people. It is the will of the people. It is the will of the people. We must understand it is the will of the people. We must understand there is nothing for us to fear, nothing. A just victory will succeed, must succeed. It has been proven. The Palestinians will have a just victory. They will dismantle the unjust, illegal, and immoral state of Israel. They will do it. They will do it. They will do it. They will do it. We as Africans have no alternative but to fight against Israel. We have no alternative. Israel is trying to get into Egypt. Egypt is ours. It's in Africa. It's Africa. We have no alternative but to support it because it is a just struggle. It is a just struggle and we are a just people. 
We must support it. Before we can do support it with our words, we will support it like we supported Vietnam, like we continue to support all struggling peoples. If it's only with our voice, if it's only with voting power, as we did in the last election, we will say we are against fascism and vote against Nixon. We voted against him when he was a punk running against Humphrey, against Kennedy. The black community has always been anti-fascist, even in electoral politics. It is a black vote that put Kennedy into this office as opposed to Nixon. That's how long we've been opposed to Nixon. <laughs> so we know him. We know him, and we are not afraid of him because we understand science. President Sekou Toure, once again, a brilliant black man, says that when you want steel and you want to shape it and mold it into perfection, he says you must take heat and pressure, a lot of heat and a lot of pressure. The more heat and the more pressure, the better you can mold it. What then, says he, do you think about people? Nixon, put the pressure on us, and we will mold for you the most perfect revolution the world has ever seen. Thank you. Thank you. The mics are open if you have any questions from either side. Afterwards, I wish to remind you there's an informal reception for all students who wish to participate in the men's lounge. Thank you very much for uh, uh, the, way you, yeah, the way you gave us uh, what we really needed to listen today. Uh, I'd like to ask you, since you've been in Guinea, uh, you must have come across Cabral, who just was assassinated by colonial imperialism. And I'd like, to, uh, uh, I'd like you to give us some view, since a lot of the students here don't even, don't even know Cabral, if you would give us some information, and thank you. Thank you. Um, Brother Mika Cabral was the leader of the PAIGC. It is a guerrilla movement, a liberation movement, a movement which is fighting with arms in its hand against Portuguese imperialism backed by NATO forces in Africa. Their fight is, in the, is for part of our continent, which is adjacent to Guinea. I have the privilege and the pleasure and the honor of meeting Brother Cabral, working with him, seeing him many times. In 1970, when the Portuguese invaded our country, under barbaric forces aligned with NATO, the Portuguese fascists made their number one target the headquarters of the PAIGC. They attacked the headquarters and they burned a house because there were two houses which were similar. They looked alike. And Mr. Cabral lived in one. And they burned the house thinking it was Brother Cabral's house. He wasn't there. He was in the house next door. I think they killed the daughter and the wife of... Uh, Czechoslovakian gun experts. But the brothers of the PAIGC fought. They withstood the attack. 
The Portuguese assumed that they must get Mr. Cabral in order to stop the movement. The AIGC had reached the proportions where this year they had all intentions to declare independence against the Portuguese. Obviously a threat against Portuguese stronghold in Africa, simply because with PAIGC showing the headway, it's just a matter of time before brothers in Angola and Mozambique were to follow the example, be inspired by the courageous struggle of their brothers on the eastern front of Africa. Thus they assassinated Mr. Cabral. They've done nothing. They cannot stop the revolution. It is not man that we love, it is his ideas that we love. I have never met the Honorable Marcus Garvey, yet I love him because I know what he did for me. I love him. I met Brother Malcolm X very few times, very few times. I couldn't say I know him. And when I met him, it was more as a student or lecturer. So I could never say I know But I love him. I love him. And many people in this country came to know Malcolm X and love him after his death. So it is not the man. It is the ideas. The ideas that Brother Cabral fought for will live on to see triumph. They can't stop the ideas. They can kill all the men they want. But the people will carry on the ideas and make victory. Portuguese fascism will be destroyed in Africa with or without. There is no way to stop it. As a matter of fact, the death of Brother Cabral only spurs us into more righteous indignation, just converting our energies to more creative forces to work for the benefit of our continent and our people. The man can't stop it. When we march to South Africa, Brother Cabral will be there. Patrice Lumumba will be there. The Honorable Marcus Garvey will be there. We will all be there because we all have the same idea. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I just wanted to, um, first of all, thank you, man. You know, I, for um, not so much for what you said, but uh, for bringing out all of these people here. Now, there were sufficient points of agreement between myself and yourself so that I can honestly and with all my heart salute you as a revolutionary. Yet at this point, and in keeping this in line, and in keeping this in mind, I'd like to just address a few words to the people who are here. And those words would be this, and perhaps Stokely, after, um, after I said these things, maybe you can comment on it. I would say that 90% um, of the people in this room should be ashamed of themselves. You know, like uh, um, brothers who are in the BSU, white people who, are, who have been conducting uh, um, revolutionary movements on this campus, my own organization, the Committee uh, to uh, Combat Racism, have been attempting to wage struggle against all manifestations of racist, capitalist, or sexist exploitation that go on in this country. When the brothers are, uh, who got killed at Southern University uh, were murdered, that should have been 10,000 people out at UCLA at that rally. There were about 400, and I salute those people. And I give them my heartfelt gratitude also, as I've, gone, as, as I've just given to Stokely Carmichael. So um, what I say to you brothers and sisters, all of you, is that uh, the time has come. Brothers and minorities and poor people and even American white middle class people are in the greatest uh, danger of their lives or in our times right now. Nixon is at the peak of his power and, that, and he, uh, he is certainly using, utilizing his power also. And that if uh, we are to counter his, uh, his counter-revolutionary thrust, it must only be done so with a revolutionary thrust of our own. So I ask you guys, Participate in an organization of your choice, 
whatever the organization might be, so that the next time something happens, they'll be held to pay. I would just think that uh, there is a need for constant work, but uh, for the brothers and sisters particularly, I would say that if you really understand revolutionary warfare, or if you even understand revolution, then you would know that the role of students is that of the revolutionary intelligentsia. That is your role. I mean, you are at school, you know. And if you say it's irrelevant, well, then you shouldn't be here. Because if you're here and you say it's irrelevant, then you're showing your own stupidity that you're letting something that's irrelevant govern your lives for four years. That's what it says. If something's irrelevant to me, I ain't got nothing to do with it. Thus, if you're here, what you must do is to use all the skills that you have here, take them in, be the first in your class, and bring them back to the black community. You have to do that. You, you have to do that because you have a responsibility to do that. The fact is that many of these black students' associations are a result of pressure from the masses of our people. When the brothers and sisters started the rebellion and they were out in the streets, they opened up these things. These were their valves to allow some of the pressure to come in. Now, brothers and sisters died in the streets. Their blood got you here. Their blood got you here. Thus, you have a blood responsibility to your people to bring it back to them. You have a black responsibility. And the only way you can bring it back is if you get something. So while you're here, instead of jiving, instead of rapping, study. A gorilla studies. A gorilla studies. A gorilla studies. If you're a true gorilla, study, because you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to know it. You've got to know it. You've got to know it. Since you have that opportunity, since it's available here at this institution, then you must study. There's no discussion for black student unions in this country. You know, people talk about, well, there's no black chemistry, no black mathematics. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. We know mathematics and chemistry is universal truths. We know that. That's not the issue. The real purpose of a black student organization on any white campus is to motivate black students to begin to work together and bring back what they have to serve their people truthfully. That's its only purpose and function, to motivate black students to serve the people because of the system in which we live. If we don't do that, we will be like everybody else, coming here for a piece of paper. Coming here for a piece of paper. Thus, you must on your own begin to get together. You can't wait. I mean, you got in here because of the blood of your people. Do something with it. Please just don't sit on it because you'll have to face the people someday. You will. They'll ask you when time comes. You went to school for so-and-so. Do it. Right on. You're going to have to do it with less tools than you got here. You have to surpass the technology, so you better get the knowledge in whatever field you're in. Get it! Get it! If you're in physics, you should be the first in your class. Get it. You can do it. Ain't nothing wrong with you. You're African. You built the pyramids. You did. You did. You did. You laid down scientific basis for the world. Go to the pyramids and check it out and see what you find in it. It will give you the exact diameter of the sun. Go and you'll find it in the pyramids. Go.
Go and you will see the pyramids were built when there weren't cranes. Understand, you're scientific. Whatever class you're in, you should be number one in that class, if not for yourself, for your people. For your people. And if you can't be number one, you do the best you can, and that'll make you number one. Oh, uh, Mr. Carmackle. I call you Carmackle because you Mac, so where's that? <laughs> I can't get around the fact. My question to you today is this. For a brother in a land where we were brought, trying to get to a land where I belong that hadn't been bought, they're having an arts festival in 1974. I'd like to find out your impressions as to how that can grow into an extension for an American going there for that. Going to Africa, going back home? Yes, going home to the conference. Are you familiar with that, that they're having? It's an arts festival. Oh, I heard something about the arts festival in Lagos, Nigeria. Yes. Yes, I heard something about it. I'm sorry, I don't know too much about it. But um, if you go home, you should go home to see your people. Whatever excuse you go for. Whatever reason... If you got the time to go, that's the best place to grow. Well, <laughs> hey, brother, it's in Africa, and every place is good to grow. It is. <laughs> All you got to do is understand the contradictions and grow with them. Okay. Thank right. you. You're welcome. Yes, Mr. Carmichael. Near the end of your speech, you deline delineated your anti-Israeli position. Why did you wait till the end of your speech? How come it didn't come in the uh, beginning? Was there any conscious or subconscious effort to put it at the end or the beginning? Or yes. What um, was the tactic there? No, the effort to put it at the end was that people would have a clear understanding of why it must be denounced. And so all the theories for its denunciation came in the beginning. Number one, it's an unjust state. Number two, it's a base of imperialism. Number three, it's a racist state. Number four, it's an immoral, an illegal, and unjust state. Number five, it's trying to attack Africa, which is my home. How can I be for someone attacking my house? Not only that... Thank you. Not, not only that, I have to be opposed to world Zionism, you see, because uh, not only have I have political contact with them, but I have a lot of personal contact with them. Uh, Zionists have a lot of influence in the black community in America. They uh, control the black, uh, the black artists and entertainers and the radio stations in our community. And uh, because of their control of it, they have the gall, they have the unmitigated gall to try and boycott my wife from singing for her people. And you want me to stand up and rave for them? Come on, man. The power of Zionist agents notwithstanding, the power and might of the Zionist agents which control the government of the United States, which controls the media of the United States notwithstanding, I will denounce Israel as long as there's breath in my body because it's an unjust, illegal, and immoral state. I stand on that. But My, my question is about uh, our continent, Africa. 
Um, I think you know very well that um, our problem right now in terms of curating a rapid change is because of the new colonialist leaders we have, the so-called um, uh, African politicians or whatsoever you call them. Now, as you are in Conakry, I, I know you are doing a very good job there, but I want to know how you are getting yourself related in terms of ideology with other African co uh, countries so far the youths are concerned. We organize in other countries and continue to spread our ideology, while in fact uh, our continent today is dominated by neo-colonialist puppets, and it is, the masses of our people are revolutionary, and it is among these masses that we must begin to spread the revolutionary ideas and organize them so that they will be able to go out and organize the masses in the rural areas because our revolution must be a peasant revolution. So we start with the youth and spread out into the villages. We will, we will, you know we're going to win. Hey, we can't but. Uh, Mr. Carmichael, uh, I'm a white person. Can you tell? <laughs> Scientific fact. I just wanted to clarify that. Anyway, um, it's possible for me to agree with your ideas and agree that your ideas are right for black people, for other people. But I have no blood ties. I have no heritage uh, with Africa. I have no ties with Africa. Correct. Okay. Um, so when this revolution comes, uh, what am I, as a white person, supposed to do? Well, the question is, the question is very simple. If you understand capitalism, and if you understand socialism, then if you're truly fighting for socialism, we should have no conflict. We should have no conflict. If you're truly fighting for socialism, we should have no conflict. Because you'll be fighting for those general principles which I'm fighting for. Because mine will be particular as I am African. That's my own culture must play an important role in how I fight my struggle. Culture is a very important weapon in struggle. We know that. So important and so, so important is culture that the, the Chinese, after having an economic revolution, had to turn around and have a cultural revolution. So culture is an important weapon. Thus, as an African, I must use culture to my benefit. I have to do that. So uh, you, as a white person, if you're fighting truly for socialism against uh, capitalism, then there should be no problem. But, but that fight is going to come. You see, the inevitable breakdown of, uh, of capitalism in this country will come. And uh, while there's going to be a lot of widespread unemployment, it is white workers who will feel, this, feel it harder than black workers. We will feel it first. We will feel it first. But white workers will feel it harder because of the standard of living they used to. So we're only coming down from here. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> hey, they're going to fight. <laughs> They're going to really get out in the street and fight. Yeah? And if you are there organizing them, trying to destroy the power of capitalists in the country, then we should be fine. There'd be no problem. There'd be no problem. Understanding and respecting each other's culture. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. I think that's why the white left was demobilized, incidentally. Yes. Uh, recently, you had a speaking engagement up north concerning Rat Brown. I'd like for you to comment, you know, as to what's happening on the trial, as to your position or whatever on it. Uh, I saw Brother Rap Brown uh, two weeks ago. He's looking very strong. He's feeling very strong. He said to send his regards to everybody. Uh, and right now, his case, they're just picking the jury. 
and uh, some people had a uh, fundraising event to help to raise the money to defray the cost in uh, San Francisco and uh, they asked if I would go. I was very happy and honored to go in any way I can to help the brother. The uh, organization for his uh, committee, his support committee, and uh, we insist that it's a support committee rather than a defense committee because Rap Brown does not have to be defended, only supported. Only supported. And uh, they're organizing it now and uh, they want to proceed in a certain manner and when they do they'll be able to let people know. But uh, all of us I know support rap. I mean, no question in my mind about that. No question in my mind about that. And uh, we must support rap because of the positive contribution that he made to our struggle and continues to make. We must support him because rap has demonstrated what a paper tiger this country really is. You dig it? Here was a black man who was known all over this country, you understand? And the FBI were looking for him for so many years and couldn't find him, and he was steady dealing. <laughs> Living underground, Rap Brown. They didn't even have to put out his picture when they said the FBI wants Rap Brown, and they still couldn't find him. Thus, Rap shows us you can live underground in this country and work and deal and keep on getting up. So that is one of his greatest contributions to us as a people so that people can understand you can really do it. Hey, you can live on the ground and keep on functioning. As Mr. big Carmichael? and bad as the FBI is. You know, I think as big and bad they are with all this thing, they would pick him up overnight, you know. And Rap Brown, fat who they know they couldn't pick up. Mr. Carmichael, my first uh, comment is a historical correction. The blacks, did, the blacks did not build the pyramids, the Jews did. The Jews? That's I'm number sorry. one. <laughs> I beg your pardon? The blacks did not build the pyramids, the Jews did. That's comment number one. Okay. That's right, Jewish labor under Egyptian slave masters. Continue. <clears throat> My second comment... I wouldn't have built them without slavery either. Continue, continue, please. My second please. comment... We let him state it. You want to help him? Come. You can help him. <laughs> right, comment, comment number two... Let your brother continue. Comment, Comment number, number two. two. <clears throat> if you believe that the Zionists control and exploit the people in this country, then you're an anti-Semite, even though you deny it in your book. Stokely speaks. Okay. Let's take your... Comment number three. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's too bad that you align yourself against the National Liberation Movement of the Jewish people, Zionism. Because by doing that, you align the black people against the Jewish people. They each, have a they each have national liberation movements, and to, to uh, align them against each other just is, is um, it's calling for, for future conflict between them. Okay, let's go to number one. <coughs> you say the Jews built the pyramids. That's right. Uh, does Africa belong to the Jews or to the Africans? I'm sorry? Does Africa belong to the Jews or to the Africans? To Africa. Thank you. Next question. They built the pyramids, though. That, hey, don't grab it. I mean, there's no need to discuss that. Africa is my house. Yeah, it's just so whatever is built in my house is mine, isn't it? Fine, but it's built by Jews. Talking about but the pyramids. Look here. Even if the Jews built it, uh, who gave them the plan since they were slave laborers? Gave them the plan? Yeah, who gave Nobody them the plan? Nobody gave them any plan. Somebody told them to do it with whips. Right, somebody told them how to do it with whips. The Egyptians. So the people I was talking about the slave labor. I was talking about the mighty planning of the pyramids. Did the Africans do that? Well... Well, then the owner of the factory made the shirts, not the workers, right? Yeah, understood that. Understood. Understood. Yeah. Understood. 
Hold on. Continue. Okay. You just go to the microphone. You're very... But you're impolite. Oh, come on. Yet you're being impolite. That's a Zionist tactic. Come to the microphone. Let's discuss it. Come. No, I'll carry it. Uh, my second comment was referring to your statements uh, all right. about Zionists exploiting people in this country. Correct. In I your, said the Zionists. In your book, Stokely yeah, Speaks, you, you, call, you oh, say man, that the Zion, Zionism must be eradicated no, wherever it's found in the Middle East or in the ghettos of the United States. Correct. That's typical Hitlerian propaganda. Typical what kind? Hitlerian. Hitler. Adolf Hitler. A German. Oh, I understand. A Nazi. That. Yeah, I understand. Look that's, here. That's German propaganda. I understand. Let me tell you a tactic of Zionism. What they do is that every time you say something, they bring out Hitler. You understand? And they make you feel scared about Hitler. Okay, if Hitler killed as many Jews as he did, then what the Jews should do is take Germany. Why you go to Palestine? The Arabs ain't did nothing to you. Number one. Go to, go to Germany. 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 Because Germany is not our homeland, Israel is. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Egypt is mine. It's Africa. Is that correct? That's right. Why does Israel want to attack Israel Africa? does not want Egypt. Israel doesn't want Egypt. No, it does not. What does it want? Israel wants Israel. Where is Israel? Israel? What year was Israel recreated? How did you get it? How? Who gave it to you? Lord Belfort in London in 1916, was it his? The modern state of Israel was created by the United Nations. Uh -huh. He's right. He's absolutely correct. He is absolutely correct. And that shows you what an illegal, immoral, unjust state is. Today, it won't even listen to the rules of the United Nations, which tells it to withdraw from the 1967 that's, borders. That's yeah. very interesting, Mr. Carmichael. On one Come on, hand, let's on one, work with it. The United work. Nations is a bunch of side. bullshit. And you know it. Hey, hey, hey. On one hand, you please, say that... Please, wait, wait, hold it. No, please. For respect of me, I don't curse publicly. I didn't go through that period. I left it where it belonged. I said it. He didn't. The same roots and the same rights that right. blacks have to Africa are the same rights that Jews have to Israel. Because they've been living in exile does not mean we've relinquished the right. We still cherish it in our hearts. I understand that. I understand that. So don't, don't go off calling us aggressors because we have a right to that land just right. as blacks have a right to Africa. I understand. I'm saying that Africa belongs to us. You say it belongs to you too. So no, I don't. Two spaces. I say Africa is yours, but Israel is ours. No. There's a difference. No. Yes, there is. Israel belongs to the Palestinians. For someone who believes in humanity, you certainly haven't shown it to me here. I do believe in humanity. Only black humanity. I believe, but that's humanity. Hey. What about Jewish? Hey. Hey. No, hey. it's going to go that way, Stokely, then it's yellow humanity. Hey, come on. Are blacks the only people in the world? No, we're not the only people in the world. Are we're Jews not. a people? Huh? Are Jews a people? They call themselves a people, yes. They are a people. Well, you wait in line. I've been waiting here. Let me say something. I've been waiting in line, man. Let me say this. Let me say something here. Uh, wait a minute, hold it now. Wasn't it, wasn't it in June the 12th, 1948, that they made the exodus from Europe? Was that it? That's and when the uh, United Nations uh, gave it yeah. to them. But Israel was signed to them in 1917 by Lord Belfort of the English-British government. Okay. The Arabs had the land, and he signed a piece of paper and gave it to them. Okay. Uh -huh. Now, what is the definition of Jewish? 
Well, I said Zionists. That's them. Because the reason why I'm, I'm trying to figure out now, uh, Israel is in the Middle East, right? Or Jerusalem. That's where they created it, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. And the people that exited there, they came from Europe. I hear you. Were they Germans and Polacks yes. and, and things like that? Yes. Now, yeah. they came from Yemen, Morocco, you. Iraq, Egypt, <laughs> Jordan. Man, I'm I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Wait, wait. Please, let me just finish this last question on the question of anti-Semitic. Now, when he says I'm anti-Semitic, I'm supposed to jump back and say, hey, no, I'm not that. But in the first place, his definition is incorrect. As I understand it, the Arabs are also a Semite people, and I support the just claims of the Palestinian people to their land. Thus, I am pro-Semitic. I'm pro-Semitic. Anti-Semitic has never meant anti-Arab. It's always meant anti-Jewish. You going. make it mean that, but you should have heard my speech in 1968. I said the power to define would be our right, that self-determination. You are anti-Jewish. You're an anti-Semite. Hey, I'm anti-Zionist. I'll tell you what I am. Anti-Zionist. I'm anti-Zionist. I'll tell you what I am. You've been speaking for 10 minutes. Hey, uh, Stokely, let's talk about something okay, else hold now. It, hold it, everybody, just a second. We're out of time here. We're a little bit over. And so we're going to have to end it here. And we're moving it to the reception in the men's lounge. We can continue discussion there. Because that's it. We don't have any. No more time. We're over. That's it. And that was a historic uh, address uh, by... Stokely Carmichael, uh, later known as Kwame Ture at the University of California at Los Angeles, on January 31st of uh, 1973, some 50 years ago this year. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, uh, February 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of uh, this week's edition of the Pan-African Journal.
Music uh, from uh, the band Love, uh, led by Arthur Lee and uh, Johnny Eccles uh, from their third album, uh, released in 1967, entitled Forever Changes. That track was called The Daily Planet. And our final segment, we're going to hear excerpts uh, from uh, Michelle Alexander. Uh, her thesis on the new Jim Crow, how the criminal justice system in the United States has continued uh, the enslavement uh, of African people. Let's listen to uh, Michelle Alexander on the new Jim Crow, speaking at the Union Theological Seminary in 2015. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here tonight. Oh, I am happy to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I am so glad to be here at Union Theological seminary surrounded by so many people of faith and people of conscience, beautiful souls who are dedicated to justice, not just in theory, but in practice, in daily life. In so many ways, I feel like coming to Union is like coming home. I've had the opportunity to meet with many of you um, in the past two days in classrooms and rich discussions and debates, and this feels like family, feels like home. I am in love with the spirit of this place and thrilled by the work that so many of you are doing, opening hearts and minds and transforming lives and communities. I especially want to thank Serene Jones uh, and Judith Moyers for inviting me here tonight uh, to participate in this wonderful lecture series. I am in awe of the steadfast commitment and remarkable contributions that both Judith and Bill Moyers have made to social justice. So to be here at Union at Judith's invitation, you know, a work day just doesn't get much better than this. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here tonight. Well, I've been giving some thought to what I want to say tonight, uh, a lot of thought. After all, we're all coming together here tonight to explore the meaning of race and justice at a particularly critical moment in our nation's history, a time when it seems as though we may be once again at a fork in the road. Of course, it's always tricky business to make predictions or assessments in the midst of great crisis. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself pointed out that difficulty nearly a century ago. He said, quote, whenever I'm asked my opinion of the current state of the civil rights movement, I am forced to pause. It is not easy to describe a crisis so profound that it has caused the most powerful nation in the world to stagger in confusion and bewilderment. Well, in recent months, as our nation has reeled from Michael Brown and Eric Garner's senseless killings and the refusal of consecutive grand juries to issue indictments, confusion and bewilderment has flowed, flowed as tears, rage, shame, disbelief, and more than a bit of denial. This particular crisis may feel sudden and new to some, but its roots are as old as the country itself. 
We continue to live the paradox of a nation founded with the bold preamble that all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, while at the same time denying all of those basic civil and human rights to slaves and writing into the original Constitution the rule that black people counted as only three-fifths of a human being. This paradox of a nation founded with lofty ideals of freedom and equality, but extending those ideals primarily to wealthy white men is the founding paradox of our nation, and it remains a paradox to this day, even now as a black man sits in the Oval Office. For years now, I have been obsessed with this paradox. Not its theoretical existence, but its concrete manifestation in the brutal system of mass incarceration, a penal system unlike anything this world has ever seen. I've been obsessed. I have been traveling from coast to coast, speaking to just about anyone who will listen, saying pretty much the same thing over and over again. I have been talking and talking and talking about the ways in which our nation, from its founding, from the very, very beginning, has repeatedly birthed and maintained extraordinary systems of racial and social control and continues to do so even now, even as most of us claim to be colorblind, even in the age of Obama. Over and over and over, I've repeated the basic facts. More African-Americans are under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. And since John Legend repeated those words at the Academy Awards, people have said, and I've heard people saying, well, those numbers really aren't so bad because there are a lot more black people you know, alive today than there were back then, so those numbers aren't so bad. And it's true that mass incarceration doesn't affect everyone. In fact, it affects a relatively small segment of American society, one defined by race and class. But within that segment, it has come for nearly everyone. Nationwide, about a third of black men can expect to spend time behind bars. But if you lack a high school diploma, as many do as most do in many inner city communities, that figure rises to about 60%. And then if you count all those who have been saddled with criminal records who may have been lucky enough to get just felony probation, never mind the millions who are all stopped, frisked, searched, and monitored for no good reason at all, as well as all of the thousands who are cited for loitering or jaywalking in the name of broken windows policing, the practical equivalent of the black codes in poor communities of color, well, now you're beginning to get a picture of an entire community defined by race and class under perpetual correctional control or surveillance and relegated to a permanent second-class status. In many urban areas today, more than half of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. 
In cities like Chicago, Detroit, Philly, Newark, and likely New York, the statistics are even worse. And once branded a criminal or felon, you're ushered into a parallel social universe in which the basic civil and human rights that apply to others no longer apply to you. You may be stripped legally of the very right supposedly won in the civil rights movement, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, access to education, and basic public benefits. So many of the old forms of discrimination that we supposedly left behind during the Jim Crow era are suddenly legal again once you've been branded a felon. That's why I say we haven't ended racial caste in America. We've merely redesigned it. In many ways, it seems as though that the birth of this new caste-like system was foreshadowed by the U.S. Constitution itself. Perhaps we should have all seen this coming. For the 13th Amendment in the United States, ratified following the Civil War, explicitly abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. That's the loophole. It's not true that slavery has been abolished in the United States. It's simply not true. If you've been convicted of a crime, the U.S. Constitution says slavery is just fine. And in the 14th Amendment, which was adopted with the express purpose of eradicating the vestiges of slavery and guaranteeing the right to vote and equal treatment under the law, the same loophole appears again. Section 2 of the 14th Amendment states that the one-person, one-vote principle and the right to vote itself cannot be abridged except in cases of rebellion or punishment for a crime. It seems now, in retrospect, that the U.S. Constitution itself nearly provided instruction for the legal formation of the next caste system. It states quite explicitly that you may not enslave or deny equal treatment of the law or the right to vote or relegate any citizen to pertinent second-class status unless you first brand them a criminal. And then at that moment, they are deemed to have no humanity at all, and can be subject to precisely the same treatment as a slave. Over and over to audiences large and small in prisons and reentry centers, on college campuses, churches, judicial conferences, just anywhere, people will listen to me. I've been repeating the same message, that we as a nation have done it again. And I've been trying to expose the myths that have kept us asleep and in denial, passively accepting this human rights nightmare that is occurring on our watch. These powerful myths, especially the myth that the explosion in our prison system can be explained simply by crime and crime rates. It's not true. Just not true. There's this myth that somehow black and brown folks have just brought all of this on themselves. And the data... The research shows it's just not true. Once I finally, very belatedly, woke up to the reality of this criminal injustice system and came to realize that it is not just another institution in our society infected with racial bias, but a primary engine of racial inequality in the United States, and that we will never achieve quality education for poor kids of color or meaningfully address chronic joblessness and hopelessness as long as we continue to wage wars on the most vulnerable and lock them up in mass 
into a permanent second-class status? Once it became clear to me that this punitive impulse towards them, the others, this impulse to control, slay, enslave, and punish them, lies at the root of all our divisive racial politics infecting every single social justice debate, not just about crime, but also about education, zero tolerance, health care, housing, the minimum wage and beyond, making a progressive alliance between poor and working class white folks and folks of color nearly impossible as we are constantly pit against one another, encouraged to blame ourselves and one another rather than grasping the bigger picture and asking the bigger questions and seeing our shared interests and dreams. Once I began to see that this pervasive, punitive impulse towards poor people of color has less to do with crime than our racial history and our racial present, which is why our criminal justice system functions more like a system of racial and social control than a system of crime prevention and control, once I came to see this and finally woke up myself, I became obsessed. And so here I am tempted yet again to give you all a new Jim Crow lecture, an overview of the war on drugs and the war on crime and how it all actually works as opposed to how it's advertised and how these wars and more importantly the war mentality the us versus them, search and destroy, lock them up and throw away the key, has decimated communities of color, and how our legal system has conspired to keep millions cycling in and out of prison for the rest of their lives. I'm tempted. <laughs> for I know that many people in this audience think that they know how the system works, just like I once did, but really don't. Some of you may think that you know how bad it is how discriminatory, how the legal system is rigged, but you don't really know the half of it, just like I once thought that I knew but didn't. But in the short time that I'm here tonight, I really don't want to talk any more about the problem and how we got here. Instead, I want to wrestle with the big question, the elephant in the room. What does all this mean for us, for people of faith, people of conscience? What are we called to do? At this moment in our nation's history, what does our faith and conscience demand of us? Now, don't get me wrong, understanding the problem, really understanding it and how we got to this moment in our nation's history is critically important. If we don't really know our history, truly understand it, we are doomed to repeat it. Nothing could be more clear to me now. But what I really want to do, what I feel moved to do tonight, is to challenge us to think about what this means for us as people of faith, people of conscience. But I must say, in challenging us to wrestle with this question, I want to make clear that I'm not pretending to have any special insight into the answer. I am not a theologian. I believe that we desperately need a multiracial, multiethnic, interfaith theology of liberation for this era of mass incarceration. But I'm not here to offer a theology tonight. Instead, I'm here to tell you why I think we need one. For much of my adult life, I have been involved in various efforts to reform our justice system or obtain something like justice for people who have been discriminated against, abused, locked up, locked out, and disposed of like garbage. It took me, as a civil rights lawyer, a long while to wake up to the reality that a new Jim Crow had been born. 
But what I can tell you from my years of experience as a civil rights lawyer, as a legislative advocate, as a coalition builder, as a media advocate, is this. Ultimately, this freedom struggle will not be won in the courtrooms or in halls of power. There is no legal strategy or set of policy arguments that will end this history and cycle of creating caste-like systems in America. For what we have here is a crisis of conscience. The truth is we've become the most punitive nation in the world, and the roots of our punitiveness have a great deal to do with race. A relentless punitive impulse, the recurring impulse to punish and control poor people and people of color rather than view them as worthy of care, compassion, and concern. What we face is a profound moral and spiritual crisis, not merely a failure of public policy. Mark Maurer, the executive director of the Sentencing Project, published the results of research in his book, great book, The Race to Incarcerate. The research showed that the most punitive nations in the world are the most diverse. The most lenient, the most compassionate nations are the most homogeneous. It seems that an aspect of human nature is a punitive impulse towards those we label the others. And so perhaps it should come as no surprise that a vicious backlash against the civil rights movement manifesting as law and order and a get-tough movement. Combined with the economic collapse of inner-city communities across America, led to the birth of a penal system unlike anything the world had ever seen. Indeed, it now seems fair to say that the future of American democracy itself, as it continues to diversify in the years to come, and with increasing economic inequality, rests on whether we as a people ultimately rise to the challenge that this multiracial, multi-ethnic experiment in democracy presents and find a way to care for each other, genuinely care for each other across the innumerable lines of race, class, ethnicity, and difference. If we are serious about doing more than just tinkering with the mass incarceration machine, if we are serious about breaking our nation's habit of creating massive systems of racial and social control, if we are serious about rising to the challenge that this paradox of America presents, then people of faith and people of conscience are going to need to step up in a big way and show tremendous courage, speak unpopular and inconvenient truths, and offer a vision for justice that transcends the politics of power and privilege. I am speaking now most especially to students here at Union. Do not look to the lawyers to do the work of defining what justice means. Though we certainly need lawyers today, their skills and their talents as much as we need anyone. Do not look to the policymakers to define a vision of what the beloved community might look like once the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. We need our policymakers, creative, determined, inspired policymakers who are capable of imagining alternatives and designing meaningful alternatives to the status quo. But I hope we never imagine, not even for a moment, that there is some quick policy fix that is going to solve the ultimate dilemma we face. And whatever you do, please do not look to the politicians to provide moral vision or courage, especially President Barack Obama. Yes, we need far more courage from our elected leaders, for sure. 
But do not look to them, for we're looking to you. It may not seem like people of faith, people of conscience, people of courageous moral vision are in high demand right now. After all, it seems that nearly every week there's some new poll or study showing that Americans are becoming ever more disenchanted with religion and drifting away from their faith, becoming more cynical about politics. But for the past five years, I've been speaking to thousands of people all over the country. And one of the questions that I hear over and over again is, who will be our Martin Luther King Jr.? Who will be our leader in this movement to end mass incarceration? Now, this question used to really annoy me because I do not believe that we should be waiting around for some magical, mythical leader to appear who will lead us all to the promised land like some Pied Piper with the rest of us following behind, you know, whistling their tune. I am not a fan of the big leader to the rescue school of thought, and so this question has bothered me for some time. But recently I've started listening more carefully when the question is asked. Who will be our Dr. King? And I've come to believe that what people are really asking for isn't necessarily a leader to the rescue, but instead they're expressing a deep need and a sincere desire for the kind of bold moral vision and radical alternative narrative and a model of courageous risk-taking and sacrifice that was offered by Dr. King and by Malcolm X in his way. I believe what they're asking for everywhere I go, whether they may know it or not, is what Dr. Cornell West has aptly called prophetic fire. And let me be clear that when using that term, I do not mean to evoke images of men at pulpits belling about justice and pounding the lectern. I mean, this is a women of spirit lecture after all. And yes. And on that note, I remember when, you know, I was in law school, I attended a panel where the topic was hate speech. And there was this young female professor named Mari Matsuda on the panel. And she was a beautiful, young, Asian-American woman, very petite. And she sat very still and very serene while her other male panelists carried on, making points and jabbing their fingers in the air and all of them insisting that, while of course we must hate, abhor hate speech, we must, absolutely must, value the First Amendment right to say anything to anyone, anywhere. That First Amendment right must be deemed inviolate. Talking over one another, interrupting anyone, reaffirming the First Amendment. And then when it was her turn to speak, she spoke quietly and calmly and with such extraordinary conviction and yet humility that the whole room just hushed and hung on her every word. You could literally hear a pin drop. And she spoke what amounted to heresy in that elite law school setting. She said that she believed that the 14th Amendment, which guarantees the principle of equal treatment under the law, and which was adopted following a civil war with the express purpose of ridding our nation of a racial caste system that made a mockery of our democracy must be the one principle of our Constitution that trumps them all. And therefore, in her view, no one in the United States should be viewed as possessing a constitutional right to engage in hate speech. 
Now, I cannot tell you what a powerful impact she had on me, and it wasn't what she said so much, but how she said it. She was utterly fearless in speaking her truth, and she was refusing to resort to the tactics of power and control, arguing and interrupting and intimidating others into agreement or acquiescence or silence. She was on fire in the most beautiful way, unlike anything I had ever quite seen before. And so when I say to you, students at Union, that we are looking to you, we desperately need you to bring your prophetic fire, I'm asking you, begging you to speak in your own voice, your own truth, and with a fearlessness and a determination that honors your most sacred beliefs and moral commitments. We need you, students of morality and students of theology, to speak your truth so that we might all muster the courage to do the same. I personally have been struggling to muster my own courage. And I will be eternally grateful for one man who helped me to see that I could no longer hide from the spiritual dimensions of my own work. I met him a few years ago while I was on the road talking about my book and the phenomenon of mass incarceration. And at the time, I was struggling with a feeling of depression and anxiety, worrying that all of the work that I had put into writing the new Jim Crow was actually had all been for nothing. It had begun as a strange, nagging feeling, actually a voice in my head or this recurring thought that kept repeating itself after every speech. The voice said quietly but clearly, all sound and fury but signifying nothing. And I was at a loss as to why I would be hearing such a voice in my head. I started thinking that God or the spirits of my ancestors were trying to send me a message that the work that I've been doing was for naught, that it all meant nothing, that I was accomplishing nothing. And it's difficult to explain the distress that this thought, this recurring thought, this voice was causing me. I should point out that my book had not yet become a bestseller. In fact, I was struggling mightily to get anyone to listen to the message I was desperately trying to share. I was speaking in nearly empty church basements and to small crowds, often begging people to let me come and share my message. Over the time, crowds began to grow in size, thanks in part to Bill Moyers and Amy Goodman, who were among the first people to grant me an interview. But, you know, I was getting tired, and I was on the road away from my young children. I'm actually quite an introvert by nature, so getting up in front of large crowds over and over again was scary and draining. But I was doing it, trying to share the facts, wake people up, tell the history, share the data. And then as I was trying to walk off the stage, I would hear all sound and fury and signifying nothing. And then a moment of truth came. I was invited by the late, great Vincent Harding, Dr. Vincent Harding, to speak at the Islip School of Theology in Denver. And when I arrived, he welcomed me like a long-lost friend, and then he sat me down and told me that he was grateful for my research and writing, but that's not why he invited me. He said in his slow, low, and steady voice, the reason I invited you here, my sister, daughter, niece, and friend, isn't because you gathered the evidence to indict the system. No, I invited you because you wrote that the time had come for us to stand with the despised, 
the accused, the convicted, the least of these. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Michelle Alexander uh, discussing her research uh, on the new Jim Crow, uh, the legal system inside the United States, which has enslaved uh, Africans since uh, the collapse of Reconstruction and, of course, uh, the end of enslavement. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, February the 25th, uh, 2023. Uh, We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, This is African American History Month. And uh, in our next program, uh, we'll have our final installment for African American History Month 2023. So tune in. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to conclude uh, with the Lee Morgan sextet. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 